Happy Earth Day tomorrow. Earth Day was initiated in 1970. And it was part of the new left. It was part of the black revolution. It was part of the movement. Earth Day was not simply a, a happy hippie experience. It was an extension of the black movement, the anti-war movement that then moved to the occupation self the occupational, it was part of the black movement and the civil rights movement, the women's movement that moved to occupational safety and health that formed OSHA and Earth Day that pushed, yes, Richard Nixon to initiate the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, one, uh, Richard Nixon was actually one of the very best environmental presidents. You heard it here. He also was terrible on many things, such as the war in Vietnam and locking up black people, but he actually was good on the EPA. So we're going to talk about today the Bus Riders Union campaign for free public transportation and no cars in the way. Then we're going to have a very interesting interview with the actress Talia Shire in the new movie called Working Man which is going to stream immediately around May 5th because the theaters are closed. You all know Talia Shire in terms of two archetypical parts. She was Connie Corleone in The Godfather, I believe all three. And she was Adrian Balboa in Rocky, I think all seven. But here she plays, because she said on the interview, a character actress. She, she plays the role of Iola Parker, who's the wife of a, a, a worker named Allery Parker. We'll get to the interview later. But the film is called Working Man, and it's going to be great to have Talia on the show. She's also a big fan of KPFK, and we hope that she'll also be a fan of Voices from the Frontlines. And finally, I'm going to do a commentary on the new documentary, Last Dance. It's a sports documentary on ESPN about the very last year of the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. Terrific documentary. I'm commenting on the very first episode. There are 10 altogether. This is can't miss television, can't miss sports, especially since there's no other sports. So welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, and please spend an hour with us. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say, it's all right. Last night, Sunday night, was the opening of a 10-part 
documentary series on ESPN called The Last Dance. The Last Dance is a breakthrough in sports documentaries. The story of the Chicago Bulls tried for the sixth NBA championship in the 1997-98 season, led by Michael Jordan. Produced by Mike Tolan, out of endless footage of the 1997-98 season that Jordan controlled and finally allowed to be public in 2016, it covers the entire season. Spoiler alert, they won the championship, making it a total of six NBA championships with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Coach Phil Jackson at the core. In the last year, the team had Michael, Scotty, and a resurrected Dennis Rodman, along with Ron Harper, Steve Kerr, and Tony Kukoc. So the first episode goes into the internal struggles in which the Bulls general manager, Jerry Krause, is involved in an intrigue trying to get rid of Coach Jackson, underpaying Scottie Pippen, and Michael Jordan makes it clear he's not going to play for any other coach except Phil. Finally, to solve the problem, Krause pays Phil Jackson $6 million for the last year and tells him, I don't care if you go 82-0, and 0, you're not coming back. So Phil Jackson called that season the last dance for his team because that would be the last chance all those players would be together. But I want to focus on the first episode of 10 as the most electrifying depiction of Michael Jordan's athletic dominance that Larry Bird, who was famous for his trash talk, said, that was not Michael Jordan. That was God dressed as Michael Jordan. And Jordan really was a God on the floor. The thing I was struck by was his fluid power. He was truly in a league of his own, flying over single buildings with a single bounce. In his early days out of North Carolina and Dean Smith, he flew through the air with the greatest of ease so that the Michael Jordan and flight logo came to life on the screen. In one shot, he hits his head on the top of the backboard, two feet over the 10-foot rail. Now, this is still in his earliest years. It shows Michael Jordan in the 1992 Olympics after just finishing his junior year leading the U.S. to an Olympic gold along with a dream team of great professionals. Olympic coach Bobby Knight, known as a man to belittle even the star players, said, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player I've ever coached. James Worthy, one of the great UNC and NBA stars playing for the LA Lakers, was at the University of North Carolina a year before Jordan, and when Jordan showed up, he said, when Michael came out to the team, I was better than him for about two weeks. I've never seen other players or coaches using such superlatives and deference. The interesting thing is that when Michael Jordan was at UNC, the coach Smith ran a very tight ship in a disciplined team and was sharing the ball and hitting the open man was the key. In that system, Michael, in fact, thrived because it instilled discipline to his already magnificent talent. But yes, it did hide the true explosive greatness of his game inside the team game. The film shows Dean Smith with Michael's mother telling her and his father he would take care of Michael as his own son, and he did. 
During the endless racism of this country, Dean Smith was a true civil rights coach. An article about Smith that said Dean Smith integrated the segregated ACC conference by signing Charlie Scott, who would always call Charles, as the first black scholarship player to play at UNC. He played a major role in the dismantling of segregation in general across North Carolina. He helped integrate a local restaurant and assisted an African-American graduate student's purchase of a home in an all-white neighborhood. In a profession in which many coaches are either conservative or not political all, or I'll call them reactionary, Dean Smith opposed the Vietnam War, opposed the death penalty, and called for a freeze on nuclear weapons, among other causes. The point here is that Michael was very lucky. Either way, he was going to be the greatest player of all times. But he's been very fortunate because he's had great coaches, only two really, Dean Smith and then Phil Jackson, who understood his genius, believed in him, and allowed him to fly. Now, while it should not be a big thing to talk about an unusually decent white Southerner, in fact, it was. Because Dean Smith allowed Michael to have an actual college experience. And yes, after his junior year, when Michael was coming back to, to play at UNC, Dean Smith encouraged him to turn professional against his own self-interest, but in Michael's. In the film, it shows Michael saying, and he's so young. I mean, you got to see him because he's now in his 50s. And he's, a, he's the major character in the film in his 50s, as 18, at 21, throughout. He says, you know, I was not clear about returning to UNC for my senior year, but turning pro. But after a conversation with Coach Smith, I decided to turn professional. The footage of Michael Jordan's first two and three and four weeks in Chicago is mesmerizing. Here he is a young man among men, and yet in a few weeks, by far the best athlete on the floor in virtually every game. As the great Sidney Moncrief of Milwaukee said, I had got it all the greats. But Michael Jordan's explosive first step was something to behold, almost unreal. It's hard to express in these words, which is why film is such a great medium, the magnificent of Michael Jordan as an athlete. You got to see the film. There's nothing I can do except lead you to the film. Obviously, the film is a nuanced picture of the politics of race, the politics of ownership, the politics of a basketball team. But as someone who loves politics, the first episode made clear to me, if I'd ever forgotten, that Michael Jordan was clearly the greatest basketball player of all time. Michael Wilbon, the great reporter in Chicago and co-host of the TV show Pardon the Interruption with Tony Kornheiser, had a great observation. Michael said, this is Michael Wilbon, there were only three larger-than-life athletes in U.S. history, Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, and Michael Jordan. Michael Wilbur and I disagree. I would add a fourth, the great Native American athlete Jim Thorpe to that list. But you see Michael in all his beauty and all his glory. When I Googled Michael Jordan flying, I thought it was a long shot. But in fact, there were 10 different photo shots called Michael Jordan flying. Finally, there's the question of will. 
I always tell people there's skill and there's will, and you have to have both. The fierce determination of MJ puts him again at the top of the other list of giants. In my view, the basketball players most fierce and forceful and successful. My list is Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James. And yes, Kobe, the comparisons with Michael are so accurate. And don't worry who wins that battle. The fact for many is a debate should bring you peace and closure. I urge you to see the first dance of the last dance. The first two episodes are available on ESPN for the whole week. Every Sunday night for five weeks, they're going to release two at a time. Have a great time and watch Michael fly. Everybody, welcome again to Voices from the Frontlines on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. You can also check us out at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Hey, wait a minute. I have to say this. KPFK, KPFK, KPFK. I, I love you. I am a KPFK everything. Well, it's great. That's the kind of interruptions we love. So, uh, okay. <laughs> I'll do it again in two minutes. Yeah. But everybody should right. donate to KPFK. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, I just saw the film. And very good. Very good, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. Uh, so, Talia Shire, just before we get to the film, um, I thought of one thing is you've, you've obviously had very high profile. But my question is, you've been Connie Corleone, you've been Adrian Balboa, but now that we're all at home yeah. with lots of time on our hands, what's the film yeah. we haven't seen you in <laughs> that you'd like us to know about? Interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting, very interesting. Well, uh, you know, I am just a character actor, right? Right. So, uh, uh, and you do various things in your life uh, that sometimes people uh, do not see. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of crazy about first and is is resonates to me to myself, to, to a moment in time of my own personal transformation. Um, uh, and my home movies that you will never see. <laughs> <laughs> right. You'll never see those. But, um, uh, and there was a wonderful piece I did, Chantilly Lace, with uh, Linda Yellen. And we, we, we redid a, a, a sort of 25 years after piece. Um, so hopefully you will enjoy that. But I, I, I enjoyed that role. I was playing a nun. So I, I, and obviously nuns are very, nuns are very interesting to me. Well, you see, I threw you for a loop. You're so used to being stuck in those two roles. You, you did. You threw me. You did. Not that they're not great roles, but the question is, 
somebody doesn't want to talk about those roles, right? So uh, great, Chantilly Lace, right? Yes, we did that 25, 25 years ago. Yeah. All right, I'll go find it. 25 years ago. So now let's look okay. at working. Let's go to Working Man. Um, All right. I have the credits for the actors. Who produced it, and on what late on what? Uh, I didn't get those kind of production credits. So I know it's P Peter Garrity and Billy Brown and you, Tali Shire. And I'll, I'll, I saw the film, I thought it was very fine. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But who, who did the production? Uh, I'll tell you that Clark Peterson brought it to me. And uh, it was produced by, by Clark and Robert Drury, who also wrote and directed it, and Maya Emel and Lovell Holder. Those were our main producers. Um, and, uh, but Clark was, a, he's been my friend for the last 15, 15 years. And he is a man of impeccable taste and he brought the film to me. And as you know, it, it's a kind of low budget movie, quality movie that was shot in uh, Chicago. Well, let, let me tell our listeners about the film a little bit and you'll come in, Taya, that I mean, the first thing I, uh, you need to know about me, Taya, it, is that I've been a civil rights and environmental justice voice in my, my life. I chose Hearst uh, as revolutionaries, ah. uh, as a political decision to become auto workers, which was turned out to be a great job. And uh, so I was used to these booming factories, sometimes 5,000 workers, 2,500 workers on a shift. And a lot about what this film is about is how much working people and working men in this, a lot, but they're women in the film, love their jobs, love the factory. And, are, and even if they don't love it, they're defined by it. It becomes who they are. They wake up in the morning and go to work. It creates a structure. It's also something you're very proud of. I was also involved in one of the first successful movements against the plant closing in a different film called Tiger by the Tail that does exist. Oh, God. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Go, I'm sorry. I, no, I, I so that's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you about it. But the end, so starting with this film, it begins mm -hmm. with a factory closing. And mm -hmm. the question of what do the workers do after the factory closes? And the specific thing they do mm -hmm. is they do a worker's occupation, essentially. Uh, take it from there, Talia. Well, they, they go back. And it starts with Peter Garrity, who plays my husband in the piece. The factory is closed down, right? Yep. And uh, he still goes to work. He has the same routine. He has the same. I'm going to, it's fascinating what you said to me. I have to give you this quote, and I know you'll love it. But Freud, of all people, says that what do people need to be happy, to deal with their humanity? And it's a job, and it's love. We need to wake up in the morning and go to work, right? We need that structure. We need that sense of community. Uh, so in this piece, we are meeting Peter, and the factory is just shut down. But he refuses. He absolutely refuses to stop going to work. He gets up in the morning, he makes his breakfast, he makes his lunch, and he goes to work. And after a while, he is joined by Billy Brown, who plays 
plays Walter, right? And the piece is brilliant. Who sees this man doing this strange ritual? We realize later it's a kind of penance. But they reopen that factory. And gradually they are joined by the men, you know, and sort of, and it's extremely exciting. They're uh, disillusioned. It's not, not going to go forward. But what you do feel is the joy of men getting up in the morning and going to work. Absolutely. And and the thing, he actually has his lunch pail. He has his uh, coffee. He's got his lunch pail. He yeah. has a, he has a yeah. coffee in his thermos. Um, thermos bottle. And the thing that's interesting that Channing was talking about is, you know, in that the character, uh, Allery, mm -hmm. is, is really a very understated guy, you know, a white working class guy. Uh, but it takes in some way the fire of Walter. And there's also the historical role that black people have played in the factories where despite the racism of this country, when anybody's life is on the line, who's the person you really want to work with is a black person. Who's the person who's going to most fight the system? It's the black people. And so you see, ah. and you see the passion of Walter Brewer and how he mobilizes an overwhelmingly white, you know, with a few Latino uh, working class. He provides a hope that, uh, you know, if, if Aury provides the sort of guy that wakes up in the morning and is dependable and goes to work, it's Walter Brewer who provides that we're going to win this thing. We're going to take these people on. So, in terms of uh, no spoilers, uh, there are some deceptions involved and illusions involved, but there's a great, great line because it turns out that Walter has some, it's pretty obvious in the film, he has some uh, psychological problems, but, but the great line he said is, when the country is really going crazy, you run with your madness. And I thought what was great about that line is, oh, is, yeah. You may think you're crazy, but inside a crazy country that lays off workers, that doesn't care about people, you run with your madness and don't tell me I'm crazy. I'm crazy enough to lead this struggle. Let's, let's, yes. And I'm going to substitute that word uh, crazy for inspired. That was America, inspired. You know, and that's who Walter is. And he inspired, it's, by the way, he's brilliant in this movie. I know you agree. Yes, absolutely. Because he energizes, he energizes Allery, my husband, who, when Allery was in the great heyday of this particular factory, really kind of wasn't the guy. So it is, it is Billy Brown, right, who plays yes. Walter, who inspires him to reconnect with that, what you call that madness for the right to the worker to be inspired and have a place to create a product. You have, we all need, I'm, I don't know the mystery of life and death, but we all need a product. We need something we make and we need a community to do it with. I completely agree with you. You know, as an auto worker, you had no idea how much we love those cars. We built the Chevrolet Camaro and the Pontiac Firebird at the General Motors plant in Van Nuys, and I led a successful campaign. As I always say, there's a fine line between uh, visionary and delusional. 
usually based on the success or failure. You know, if you win, you're visionary. If you lose, you're delusional. So I won. I led huh. a 10-year campaign to keep that plant open, uh, which we'll tell you in another time. But the point is, workers love to make something, which is what you said, Talia. It's true. In this case, yeah, we didn't do. know that that car was polluting the atmosphere. We didn't know that, or well, maybe we didn't want to at the time. We didn't know that the factory is polluting the atmosphere, but we were very proud of what we made. No, there was an innocence, the cause and effect. By the way, what you're speaking is that cause that we didn't know the, uh, the effect of pollution and so forth. But the American ingenuity in the world, did you see Tucker? My brother directed Tucker. Did you see that wonderful movie? No, I didn't. It was about a car. It's about a car called the Tucker. There was really a Tucker car, but it speaks to American ingenuity. Now that car was destroyed, okay, by you know the forces in Detroit. But it was that it was a celebration of something magnificent. And my my husband once said to me, "You know America by its cars." Does that resonate with you? Yeah. You know when things are working, it's because the cars. We're making our cars. And now we're here in this moment of transition. And I was looking at yesterday, there was that great movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, which is about that transition from horses to cars, right? And we're at another moment in time. And we need to have a product. I know that you, you loved going to work to make that car. Well, I... Sadly, the film industry was a factory town. Connie was a factory town, and those and it closed down. Well, you and know, the what? musicians don't have a place. The same problem, the same issue, right? Happens here. It's happening here in Hollywood, right? In a way, if you think about it. Well, you know, the the thing is that to tell you a, a interesting evolution, revolution in my thinking. My organization, the Labor Community Strategy Center, the Bus Riders Union, now has a campaign called Free Public Transportation, No Cars in LA. And I've evolved from more cars in LA, which is what I was fighting for in 1982, to in 2020 to realize, no, we've reached the point where the internal combustion engine is too much of an attack. We can't say we don't know. And even a whole area of Ubers and Teslas is not going to cut it. We need free public transportation running 24-7. we got to get out of these cars and go back to the collective life of sitting on a bus with other people, sitting on a train with other people, and that becomes your new community. Uh, it's, we, I haven't gotten to the issue of how to make the jobs, but we'll get that another time. But what I'm saying is it's interesting about you said you can define a person by their car, since I was an auto worker, and now you define me by a bus. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, I, uh, fascinating, the car. Again, have, did you see the Magnificent Ambersons? Have you seen, seen that? But one second, before Maybe. you go, oh, talk, oh. Uh, you're on KPFK, yeah. which you're going to help me with, 90.7 FM, 98.7 yeah. in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. Mm -hmm. And this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines with Talia Shire. We're talking about the film Working Man. 
And you can reach us on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I'll tell you, you're going to tell our listeners how much you love the station. I love, remember, I interrupted you the minute we met, right? I was, oh my God, I love, yes, I love your station. I donate to your station. I love your station. And I'm loving this conversation, which we are having on your great station. But I'd rather tune it in on my car. That's on your car. Back to the car. That's fine. But listen, the next time we have a fun drive, Talia, I'm going to call you so you yeah. can give money during the voices from the front lines hour. Is that a deal? That's a deal. All right. That's a deal. Now let's go back to the. So front we were talking. We, we, you were saying about buses and com- look. We need each other. It's a, it's community, right? And people need to have a product. And you know, I'm from originally, by the way. I'm from New York, so a lot of things took place on subways and so forth. That was fascinating. California missed its moment with subways. It's trying again. But I think what you were saying is when you travel, when you travel, when you're in motion on a, in a car, on a train, in a bus, things occur to people, maybe because the view is changing. Uh, but I used to love, when I was a young girl going to my ballet lessons, I loved the buses and the subways, you know, because I'd watch people. I enjoyed other people. Anyway, just so you know that. And, and you know, I'm from New York, too, so I'm from Brooklyn and Flatbush. Where'd you grow up? Oh, I was on Long Island. I, I was born in Jamaica. My mother went to New Utrecht. Is it New Utrecht High? Utrecht yeah, High? Yeah, you're breaking up a little My bit. Was, Taya, you're breaking up a little bit. Okay, I don't want to break. If I stay very still, yeah, right, you're good. Uh, it won't happen. My mother was born in Brooklyn, so I think she went to the same high school. Flatbush, right? In Flatbush? Yeah, I know your mother. She was. Uh, we used to go out. Um, no. No, I, come on. <laughs> uh, no, I was... Oh, my uh, God, no. No, I just... It was... Uh, it's a New York joke. So the thing is that, um, where are we here? Oh, let's go back to this film. It's called Working Man. I think the, the thing that was great about the film, and there's a very cool end that I will not tell you, but tell about the dance scene, because I think that last end, that dance scene at the end of the film is very sweet. And even how his personality changes on the dance floor, in this case, with you in some way taking the lead? You know, Peter, uh, Corey wrapped that. <laughs> he, he, he was saying to me, you didn't see it. Well, I, I hope you didn't see it. He was saying, turn now, turn around. But it was very sweet because it, dancing really is, a, and I think it's about partnership, isn't it? Yes. You know, the tango is about marriage. But I, it was a sweet renaissance of the marriage that and we're not going to say but even after their long life together because obviously this is an older couple who's having a journey and a transformation that they are able to have a, a relationship that's now what shall you say energized again and spirited again uh, so that's why that dance is it, it, you're right it's really very beautiful you know, that they're, they're going back to doing that. That is a hopeful dance. Exactly. Oh, exactly. and you need, you, need to know, you need to know this. I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic, which means I don't know right from left, right? right? right. 
So dancing for me was very, very hard with him, with Peter. Right. Well, you carried it off well. And your, yeah. inner, your, inner, your eye contact was great. And the one thing I felt about that is there's a time when you've been through a battle and the battle, yeah. is, and the battle is over. I think he felt he came out a winner. I think in the end, both men came out as winners. And that's one factor in why he could dance better. Because he wasn't a broken man. You know, he was a man but that... He wasn't, yes, you're right. You know, right. he was he wasn't a broken yeah. man. He was he, he was a man that carried out something courageous. They both landed on their feet. And I think it's a film, you know, very hopeful in, in its own way. But the main thing I, I get out of the film that I want our listeners to understand is that whether General Motors closes these plants, when now workers are working allegedly remotely, for the people who are listening to the show who presently work in any kind of socialized production, like at least a big city hospital, where there's a community, I've also been a nurse's aide, where if you work in a big place, it's great. I'm sorry, I love big places where there's a lot of different ethnicities and different people, different jobs, and those factories are closing down, and the concept of socialized production is being lost. And this film is fundamentally about that, about working people who love their factory even when there's not a company. And it's got some interesting twists. I don't want to go any further because I want you to go see it. So, uh, Talia Shah, let me ask you another question. Uh, this is not going to be... Well, no, wait a minute. You, you're saying something Please. that is, is about this, this moment in time. Right. Because there will be artificial intelligence and robots and so forth. So really, what's going to get us through, and you're right, to this next moment when we could come together and have intimacy and be productive is education. That's going to take us there. So I am extremely hopeful about what is next. Well, good. I am hopeful too because I'm a civil rights climate justice organizer. So you have no choice but yeah. to be hopeful, you know, whether it's uh, being on Zoom with uh, eight of our organizers trying to figure out our lives, whether it's writing my book whether it's talking to... But Phil it's going to happen through education. It's going to happen through education or transformation. The, the help for all of us to go into... The, I'm not going to be part of the future that you will be in, but I think it's about how we have the tools to go into the future with our humanity so we can achieve intimacy. Well, I think that's a good end to the conversation because I think the intimacy... At the end of <laughs> No, I want to make sure we have a good, you know, you know, yeah. you and I, Ty, yeah. Ty, we can keep this conversation going. Send me an email and you and right. I, seriously, at Eric, not just Ty Yashar, but any of our listeners can send me an email yeah. at Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. That's Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. I'll answer all emails. And it means a lot if we keep the conversation going. We urge people to go see the film Working Man. And I want to thank you for being on Voices. You get the last word, Talia. Well, my last, it's going to be a bit of a sentence, which is thank you, Eric. Thank you. I like that sentence. You take very good care of yourself. Okay. Let's, let's stay in touch. Okay. Bye, everybody. All right, I'd like that a lot. Bye.
tell you about a historic campaign that we really need your support on and we've already gotten a lot of support it's the strategy center and bus riders union campaign called free public transportation no cars in OA." this is a great opportunity when we look at COVID-19 obviously we've seen a country in crisis we've seen a country where 30, 40 times, 70% of the people dying are black. It shows the fault line of racism in the United States. We see not enough hospitals. We see not enough masks, not enough swabs. But also we then see price gouging on the part of companies. So when a crisis comes, a lot of things that you want is if there was a movement, I'm very sorry. Uh, these damn, um, I can't. Can I shut off my my? I can't shut off my computer. So here's the thing: when when a when a crisis happens, supposedly every force in society that's in conflict takes advantage of it. So, for instance, if there was a revolutionary movement in the United States, which there is not, we would be marching in the streets despite the, uh, or using the distancing of a million-person march six feet away from each other. And yes, at some point, people could choose to have a sit-in. We could do a lot of things, but the demands would be no money for the corporations and all the money to working class people, expanding food stamps, but we're not strong enough to do that. We could say that we don't want the Army Corps of Engineers because they're the Army, and we would try to get civilian engineers. We could say that at this moment, if you're going to find trillions of dollars, and folks, most of us don't know what a million dollars is, right? We say we do, but we have never seen a million dollars. We used to think a billion dollars was a number we didn't even know. Now there's a new number called a trillion dollars. Now they've, the United States government has printed $6 trillion in phony money to give to the banks, to buy junk bonds, which means these bonds are very dangerous, but they don't want the economy to crash, so they're going to buy the junk bonds. So how come when the strategy center had billions for buses, and this is back in 1994, and people said, you can't say billions, say millions. And we said, we don't want millions, we want billions, and we want 2.7 billion. I think now we have to say trillions of dollars to change this country. Now, in the middle of all this stuff, there are certain historical opportunities Shake Shack found the opportunity to steal money from the federal government small business loan. 
$10 million. Listen to that out there, Shake Shack customers. Now Shake Shack's agreed to give back their $10, obviously, because they got busted. I'm just trying to show you how things move rapidly if you have the power, and we don't generally have the power. But here's something we have the power to. We have the power to have no cars in LA and free public transportation because the system for its own reasons has shown us that something the Strategy Center has been telling you for almost 20 years, Eric Mann in particular, that we have to have no cars in LA. We now have no cars in LA. You don't know what I mean, not no cars in LA, but we have freeways that are virtually empty, right? We have streets. I do drive my car once in a while. And there's virtually no cars on the street. Now, when you see all the cars on the street, you say, well, there's no way we could have no cars. No way. I can't even imagine it. But now we have no cars, no way. But we have to use this opportunity. It all hinges on the Los Angeles Metropolitan Transit Authority. So when you're out there, are you going to join the Strategy Center's Free Public Transportation no cars, no I campaign. It's Earth Day. You got to do something major. And Channing, I'm going to go and explain the campaign more. But I always get trouble with what? How do they really reach us? Well, there are a number of ways that you can reach us. All of the things that we do, including most of our newsletters, can be found on our website, www.thestrategycenter.org. And in fact, if you go there, you'll find everything from us from our Facebook to our Instagram to our Twitter, including our email info at the strategy center. Um, and then org. .org, excuse me. Um, and then you can actually go on social media and find all of our, all of our things. We typically have, you know, different caterings of things on all of the social media. Um, and so Instagram is mostly memes, but memes that, you know, if you even share that meme and get it in the face of people, people will be moved because everything we do is political. Um, so you can follow us at Fight Soul Cities on all three platforms. So here's the thing, you know, during Channing's campaign, a lot of people came up to us and said, I want to work with the Strategy Center. And guess what? They are. They're calling us. They're giving us their phone number. We're having real conversations with them. That's what we're seeking now. We're not just seeking, uh, will you send us a letter? Oh, that's not bad. Can you get any influence with the Los Angeles MTA to start with? Which is Mayor Eric Garcetti, Councilman uh, Mike Bonin, who's very sympathetic as I'll get to, to our, our issues around free uh, student passes. The all five county supervisors, I know four of them. I think uh, I know uh, Hilda Solis and Sheila Kuehl, Mark Ridley Thomas, and uh, Catherine Barger. So there are five county supervisors for 10 million people in the county, all of them on the MTA board. Catherine Barger. Janice Hahn, Sheila Kuehl, Mark Ridley Thomas, and Hilda Solis. If you have contacts with any of them, send me an email and say, I have a good relationship with Mark Ridley Thomas. I have a good relationship with Sheila Kuehl. She knows me. It's important. 
or my group she knows. I'm in a group, a union, a women's group. I'm going to call the Strategy Center, info at the strategy org. You know, send an email also to eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And what's the phone number, Channing? Should they call it the Strategy in Seoul or should they call it the Strategy Center? So what's Absolutely. the number there? Strategy in Seoul, it's 323-903-6238. We'll give those numbers again at the end. So, so walk, let me walk you through what a campaign looks like. Um, the free public transportation, I think you can understand, but let me tell you little things about it. The MTA has a budget, close your eyes, of $7 billion. That's a lot of money. Where do they get their money from? Interestingly, a lot of it they get through sales taxes. There are four separate half-cent sales taxes, which means every time you buy something and there's a 10% tax, 2% on $100, $2 goes to the MTA of your sales tax. They also get federal money. They get state money. They're one of the few public agencies that's got a lot of money, but they're obsessed with rail projects, which we think are gentrification projects. We think they should stop the rail projects, stop more building, and move the money to a massive bus fleet of zero emission buses and move them all over the city. Now, if we're serious about no cars in a way, which I'll get to, I understand. We can't really have no cars in a way, certainly for working people who have to get to jobs who are on the first shift, the second shift, the third shift, parents who have a daughter in preschool, another kid in school, have to go to the public hospital, have a mother living somewhere else. We get it. But what you don't get is where we get to the trillions and billions is it doesn't cost that much to run a 24-7 bus system. That's what we need, right? We also need shuttles. So if you get off the bus at 9 o'clock at night, what if there are young people who are paid to walk you home with uniforms to help you, that there are people at the stop the stops are beautiful and they have enough to make sure you're not in the rain. It's a major investment, but the government does not invest in massive public transportation. We need zero emission buses, which are primarily electric right now. And the MTA is moving in that direction. So here's a good thing. The MTA is moving in the direction of a lot of things we're saying. It's not as hostile or contested as it was before. For instance, Superintendent Austin Butner of the Los Angeles Unified School District has initiated the concept of a free student pass for the 700,000 LAUSD students. It was not the Bus Riders Union Initiative, even though we've done this for 20 years. It was his. It was also apparently Mayor Garcetti's and Supervisor Hilda Solis and City Councilman Mike Bonin's, among others. So here's a situation where we have a chance as the Bus Riders Union, even though we initiated it, to give credit where credit is due. Mayor Garcetti has taken the initiative that we couldn't get him to take. He rejected a lot of our proposals. So when somebody does something you want, even if they don't particularly give you credit, we have to say, nice job, Mayor Garcetti. But to give other people credit, like Austin Butner, he has given us credit. 
And he said, I want to thank the bus riders union for asking me for this for 20 years. So check this out. We've been saying free public transportation, free public transportation for everybody. And people go, you can't get that. You can't get that. And all of a sudden, there's a good chance we're going to have free public transportation for all the high school students. So when you get in touch and you go online to all our stuff, we're going to have all the emails of how to reach the elected officials. Is that right, Janning? Absolutely right. And where are, is it going to be already on our site or we're we going to put them up? They will be on our site by the time you hit it. <laughs> Got a deal. All right. So all those elected officials will be on the site. If you don't know the elected officials, call up and talk to somebody. Say I'm with the Strategy Center. I listen to voices from the front lines. I really care about free transportation. I get to no cars, no way. And here's the thing that's going to move us in another positive direction. The MTA is charging. Do you know how much? Close your eyes and imagine how much they're charging. If you use public transportation, you know. If you don't, you're going to be shocked. First, they charge a dollar seventy-five a ride. That's three dollars and fifty cents for a round trip. If you get off and start another one, it's another dollar seventy-five. There is how much is the all day pass, Channing? Is it seven dollars? It is seven dollars. And by the way, with the round trip, most people actually make at least one transfer. So they're doing three dollars going and three dollars coming back. Wow, and at one point there were free transfers. So now a transfer is three dollars instead of a dollar seventy five. That whole fare structure has to end. So because people can't afford it, they say, well, we have a monthly pass. But the monthly pass is $24 for a K through 12, $40 for a community college student. If you're 21 years old and black or 21 years and old than anybody and you don't have a job, it's still $100 a month to ride that bus. And then if your parents it's a hundred for them and a hundred for them. You get it. It leads to fair evasion. People cannot afford it. So the strategy center is saying, if it's free, you can't have fair evasion because there is no fair. We also want the MTA. So we're saying to the MTA, it's great what you did with the students, but what about the parents now? What about the adults? Where are people going to get the money when we're allowed to go back to the jobs that a lot of people don't even have? How are you going to get to the jobs that at least hypothetically exist without public transportation? So I've talked to Phil Washington, the CEO of the MTA. I'm not making any commitments on his part, but he certainly indicated, which I think is a great thing, and I, I hope, Phil, you feel that this is consistent. He's saying, look, we understand when people go, to, go back to work, we're going to have to make some accommodations in the direction of our customers. That's all I want to say. He's aware that the fair structure cannot operate under the new conditions. So he's another good person we could work with and you can work with. And you can call CEO Philip Washington and tell him, thanks for moving in the direction of free student pass. Could you move in the direction of free transit for everybody? Because free is the price that everybody can afford, right? Free is the price that everybody can afford. Now let's move to no cars in a way. 
Just a time check. I think you have about five minutes left. <laughs> I'm having no trouble once I get started. Um, so let's talk about no cars in LA. The automobile, the internal combustion engine, is responsible for about 40% of the emissions in Los Angeles. In some places, it's 50%. In some places, 38%, 40 42 but ha almost half of the emissions in the city come for autos. And in LA, as you can imagine, I'm going to this off. Sorry. Let's see if Leanne's printing. We'll take a break. Sorry. This printer, as you know, takes a lot of time to warm up. Are you going to print something, dude? All right. Thank you. <clears throat> in 2001 and 2002, I was at the World Conference on Sustainable Development. I'll be honest with you. I had known a lot about the environment. I didn't grasp climate change. But in 2002, I had a fear of God moment. I saw a film called Rising Waters. And that film was about the island of Tuvalu. It showed what global warming is doing to a real island right now. It showed that the warming, slight changes, seems one, temp, one degree seems slight, in the temperature of the air and the temperature of the water, leads to, for instance, the leads to the destruction of the coral reefs, which have been millions of years in construction, which leads to flooding which leads in, in sub-Saharan Africa to drought, followed by flooding, because the soil is so eroded, it can't hold the water. That is because of emissions from Europe and emissions from the United States. Of course, there's emissions from Africa, but the continuation of imperialism, which is insane, as the United States produces the emissions, and Africa is the main country that's going to be genocided through the emissions from the United States. So no cars in LA is for the people in LA, but it's also for the people in the third world. Now, I drive a car. I drive a so-called hybrid, and I like cars. I'm an auto worker. I fought for more cars in LA. But I would be willing to give up my car. I'd be willing to at least drive public transportation will start three or four days a week. If there was, forget about free public transportation, if there was viable public transportation. So we have to say the MTA, now we're talking about the city council as well. Um, what is the one um, that does all the, uh, the traffic or the highway? Uh, the Caltrans. Caltrans. All right, so back to me. So we're going to have to work with Caltrans. We're going to have to work with the county. We're going to have to work with the city. But here's another example. Have you ever heard of an auto-free rush hour? An auto-free day? An auto-free neighborhood? What if a bunch of people said, in our neighborhood, we're, going to, we're not going to use the cars for three days a week? We, are working with, we were working with students at Ochi High School in South Central to have a no cars in LA day at Ochi before the COVID-19 virus came. If this sounds like the kind of work you can do, I'm talking about organizing, I'm talking about 
giving money. I'm talking about getting involved. I'm talking about trying to change the minds of elected officials, getting your church to do something. If this sounds like you, remember, right now we have free public transportation because they're not enforcing it on the buses. Again, thanks to Phil Washington, by the way. But that's because also the drivers don't want anything to do with anybody. <laughs> so the drivers are saying, stay in the back, thank you very much. And we have to really respect the drivers who are doing their job. So we have free public transportation. We have, if not no cars in the way, very few cars in the way. So why don't we seize this opportunity to win something for the planet, to win certain something for black people that are getting double and triple the amount of deaths out of COVID, to get everybody to be able to start having a collective culture after social distancing, we have to have some kind of social contact. And yes, it will be on a bus or a train eventually. If you like these ideas, if you want to help the Bus Riders Union, Channing, tell them all the ways. Go to www.thestrategycenter.org and go to our action page, which you'll see right on the front. You'll be able to sign our petition. You'll see the contact information for all five uh, county board of supervisors and the Metro uh, CEO, and you can call them and tell them that you listen to voices from the front lines and you want to urge them to implement free public transportation. So folks, you're at home. You want to do something. Thanks for listening to voices. Send me an email. There's a lot of different ways to reach us. Eric at Voices from the Frontlines will answer that. But we'd love to hear from you. This is uh, Tuesday, April 21st. Wednesday, April 22nd is Earth Day. Don't just do something casual. Do something significant. Why don't you get involved in the campaign for free public transportation, no cars in the way? This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Front Lines. Channing, you're going to do yours? This is Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Front Lines. And we're urging you to help us win this campaign. Take good care. All power to the people. I'll see you next week. And state my case, of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did my way. Yes, regrets. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I